Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 69 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Episode 69. Oh God. Oi oi. I thought we got through it without that. There was a little pause and I thought, is she going to be bawdy? <laughs> yes, she is. This was the week that was London Fashion Week. Also, a bit of trivia. This is also the week a hot air balloon was first launched into the sky, carrying a sheep, a rooster and a duck in Versailles in 1783. <laughs> It's the week New Zealand were the first nation to grant women the right to vote in 1893. And it's the week that documented emoticons, that's the precursor to emojis, to our Generation Z listeners, which are made up colons and brackets to denote smiley or unhappy faces. They were first first recorded this week in 1982, posted on the Carnegie Mellon University Bulletin Board System. Strange but riveting start to the podcast there. Is that going to happen every week? I mean, I'm all for mixing up the template. Nah, it's just this week. <laughs> it's also the week that Hannah Gadsby returned to our screens. She was presenting an award at the Emmys to Stephen Daldry, who wasn't actually there. So she sort of said, shall I take this? And then <laughs> potted off for outstanding directing for a drama series. And the New Yorker called her patter appropriately squeamish and spiky. No one knows what jokes are, especially men, she said. That's why I'm presenting alone. Oh, I must watch that. I um, heard a rumour which brought me so much delight that she is dating Jill Soloway. Mm. What a power couple that would be. You love Jill Soloway as well, so I think you'd be quite happy about that. I'm upset. I think I want to date Jill Soloway, I've got to be totally honest. (laughs) I'm really glad that Tandy Newton won an Emmy. She won for Westworld, which I got quite bored of. Did you ever watch that? You got annoyed with me once because I got confused about this. Is this either the one in the prison or the one with the corsets? Oh, God, yeah, you are annoying. But she's... Which one is it? (laughs) It's the corsets. Corsets, but dystopian, futuristic video game. Right. Yeah, I mean, I saw the glaze come down on you. But she's... (laughs) The Alderton glaze. She's utterly brilliant in that and everything else she's in, actually. Did you hear what she said when she accepted her award? No. I don't even believe in God, but I'm going to thank her tonight. Boom! Oh, love that. Love Are you that. very chuffed that the marvellous Mrs. Maisel cleared up? I was so happy. Rachel Brosnahan's acceptance speech was the only one that I googled to watch in full. I just love the marvellous Mrs. Maisel. I think it's such a unique programme. I'm so excited that series two, I think, is out either this month or next month. I need to check it out. We had some great emails in the old mailbag this week. I just love that the old mailbag is now... I've won. You have won. It's now I am just... going to get you a mailbag, though. <laughs> it, it is pending. It's on my to-do list. It's so Blue Peter. Anyway, now part of high-low common parlance, in the mailbag this week, we got a totally lovely, and I think quite rom com email <laughs> uh, that's been sitting in the inbox for a month and I've been meaning to read out from Kaylee. Dear Dolly and Pandora, I thought you would like to know that your excellent podcast has been facilitating train passenger bonding during the recent delays caused by the outrageously hot weather. 
I was sitting on the packed London to Edinburgh train reading a book and overheard two girls next to me chatting. Something about them told me they were high-low listeners and despite wanting to butt in and ask them what they thought of this week's episode, I kept myself to myself. A couple of hours into our journey, they started to discuss great books they'd read and one of them mentioned A Little Life, which happens to be the best book I've ever read. I had to butt in then and we got talking. They began comparing their Kindle libraries and I recognised the offerings from a particular podcast. Meg Wallops's The Interestings, Elizabeth Day's The Party. I knew my suspicions were correct. I burst out with, do you listen to the Hilo? To which their reply was an enthusiastic, of course. We had a pleasant chat, which obviously soon descended into a discussion of Joan and Jerrica, leading to one of the two using the phrase deep throat advice rather too loudly for a packed Friday night train. As our conversation drew to a close and we returned to our little train travel worlds, we remarked that it would be great if this story ever made it onto the high-low. Any chance you'd say a quick hello to Daisy and her friend, didn't get her name, and say thanks for the high-low bonding moment. It was definitely the highlight of my eight-hour train journey home. Just love that. It's like the high-low meet-cute is perfect. (laughs) Speaking of A Little Life, which I also think is one of the most incredible pieces of literature um, about the male experience and male friendship and um, sexual abuse and trauma. Um, The author of A Little Life is Hanya Yanagihara, who's the editor of Tea Magazine, and she wrote A Little Life and she was the deputy editor. And she was also sitting at the Amelia Wixted show over London Fashion Week. And she was opposite me. And I think I probably took in about two very beautiful dresses because I was just staring at her from afar. And I knew I wasn't going to go up to because, I mean, what did I say? I loved your book. But I was just looking at her longingly, like yeah. hoping by osmosis some of her sort of writing talent might just <laughs> hop over the frocks onto well, me. I do find that sometimes. Like when I look at Zadie Smith's face, so much of it, I think, is me just trying to like look at her brain and try and be like, how can I gouge, your way how in? Can I gouge my way into your brain? But it's, it's, it, I'm glad that you didn't go over because I think more and more what I'm learning whenever I like accost writers that I love is that 99% of the time writers are exceptionally shy and introverted people and they find it mortifying that someone would go over and say I love your work it the thing is is what I've realized is that it's always it's on someone else's agenda so that person might be having a particular sort of knotty thought process about something or in completely their own world when someone bounds up and then suddenly it's sort of quite jarring yes and it's this quite awkward interaction it is always nice to tell someone you admire them though no it it is it is nice but it's probably nicer for you as the admirer yeah i think i think i've just noticed with writers i really try and time whether i do it or not i think when i was younger i would just go and blurt that out to anyone but i think for just for writers particularly i think they're just naturally quite introverted people quite strange people (laughs) yeah (laughs) also in the inbox this week was an adorable email from ellis the subject line was the high low for tea ellis wrote my daughter vivian loves a tea party and has been enjoying them with her friends for some time now two of her friends dolly and panda are frequent attendees the high low connection only occurred to me the other day and then we clicked on the picture and there was a gorgeous toddler having a little tea party with a panda and a dolly (laughs) a little stuffed panda bear it was so cute i actually think we might have a few infant fans my friends Richard and Victoria have a toddler called Greta who apparently regularly requests the podcast with the ladies talking it's a good name for a podcast that two ladies talking (laughs) five gold rings (laughs) we had a really interesting letter from Janine in response to our Serena Williams segment last week the coverage of this has definitely just rolled on and on Mm. um 
Janine wrote uh, an important part of the story that has been underreported is the response to the outfit that she chose to wear at the French Open, which was the tournament prior to the US Open. Serena has publicly spoken about the very complicated birth that she had with blood clots and excessive bleeding during an emergency C-section. The suit that she was wearing at the French Open was designed specifically to help minimise the risk of blood clots, yet she was roundly criticised for wearing clothing designed to protect her health, which is one of the greatest athletes of all time should surely have been the highest priority. Sadly, the commentaries surrounding the situation focused more on the traditions of female tennis players wearing short white skirts and completely ignored the fact that sportswear for elite athletes in most other sports is now about comfort, Mm. safety and performance. If Nadal had been wearing a compression shirt for his shoulder injury, would there have been anything like the controversy? Really good point. I'm mm. sorry you missed that out because that's yeah. just, it just should be an absolute given, shouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's an outrageous disparity. My favourite piece on Serena actually came out after we recorded um, and I just want to flag because I think it's my favourite thing that she's ever written and that was Hadley Freeman in the Guardian magazine on Saturday and I actually sent Hadley a little message this morning and got her to read it out for us because I thought that would be much nicer in her own voice. I have never cheated in my life. I have a daughter and I stand for what's right for her, Williams snapped at the umpire, Carlos Ramos, after he docked points from her. There have been a lot of negative responses to this. We do not live in Gilead. Motherhood is commonplace, not deserving of special privileges, one sports writer wrote. Is Gilead the bar for what women can object to now? Worse, some thought Williams was suggesting that motherhood gave her some kind of moral superiority, making her and Andrea, as a mother, leadsome of the tennis court. But Williams wasn't saying motherhood made her a saint, just that she tries to set a good example for her daughter, something she has spoken about often. Nor was she using her as an excuse, although, my God, Williams of all people, who nearly died in childbirth, would be entitled to. Yes, motherhood is commonplace. You're not the first to have a baby. But she is not comparing herself to other women, only to other athletes at her level in her sport, who are all men. As she rightly pointed out in her Vogue interview earlier this year, Federer produced four babies and barely missed a tournament. I can't even imagine where I'd be with twins right now, probably at the bottom of a pool. Things are different for women, and it's not unfeminist to admit that. It is acknowledging a pretty basic reality. Their bodies are the ones wrecked by pregnancy and childbirth, and in most cases they remain the primary caregivers. If Federer's wife Mirka still played tennis, would she be winning grand slams after two sets of twins as her husband has done? That's such a brilliant extract. I just think everything I read of Hadley Freeman's at the moment is is so, so, so spot on. I do have to stop myself from basically on every episode of The Highlight Show just going, Anna, I think Hadley Freeman said it best this week. She's having a little snooze and putting her piece into the topic. Do you know, I had to um, I had to stop myself from a topic we're talking about later from doing that as well, because otherwise it's just... I know exactly what. That's also a very good column. The Hadley Freeman podcast, <laughs> which maybe we should do. A quick tweet from the week in response to the poor girl who was recuperating at home who wrote in to Ask the Hilo. Some of you may remember from last week where she was at home recovering from an illness and her friends were all starting careers in London and going travelling. She was saying she was finding it incredibly hard to be supportive of and even to be hearing what they were up to when she felt like she was very much stalled in life. I think it's salient advice this tweet for all of us to keep front of mind. Nobody who has moved to London and has an amazing new career, quote unquote, is having the time she thinks they are. They might be hiding the struggles to protect her from them. Mm, mm, I think that's a very good point. What else have you been enjoying this week, Panda? I am reading In Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford. 
I recently mentioned on the Hilo that I hadn't read any Mitford and Haywood Hill, a bookshop in Mayfair, sent me a beautiful copy of In Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate. I had no idea how funny Nancy Mitford is. I am completely loving it. Have you read In Pursuit of Love? I read, no, I read Love in a Cold Climate when I was very young and so I remember in, loving it. In Pursuit of Love is the one before it and it's all, oh. all the madness and idiosyncrasies of a large posh family in 40s England. Dolly, you will love oh, okay. it. I've always wanted to read more of Nancy Mitford it's like a part of it's like we were talking about with Graham Greene a couple of episodes back it's a part of the kind of literary canon that I bypassed and what's so great is that you they're there to discover at any yeah. time in your life you it's, know, really, it's never too late to read those classics it's really easy to read and very jolly so I will lend you my copy afterwards I've been completely immersed and delighted by Killing Eve a drama written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge for the BBC oh, I've saved that for my inevitable hangover on Sunday I'm going <laughs> to wolf the whole thing down I don't know how it will go down on a hangover you might get a little bit little bit low Wiggy. I mean it is essentially lots of people being killed it's based on the Luke Jennings book Codename Villanelle and it's about a young female assassin called Villanelle played by Jodie Comer who is being pursued not terribly effectively by Sandra Oh of Grey's Anatomy fame it's gory but also very very funny Jodie Comer is a brilliant actor and although I find it quite odd that she's playing a Russian assassin as my husband said it's always better to get a Russian to play a Russian I think she's really good it's immensely watchable and so wonderfully written I think you're going to love it very very funny I want to see Phoebe Waller-Bridge take on more not typically Mm. comedic genres Mm. I haven't heard anyone give it a negative review so far it's across the board everyone I know has loved it it's had a lot of um, exactly really positive reviews I had the pleasure of meeting one of the co-hosts of the Independence podcast Millennial Love last week which I know you've been on Dolly she recommended a new podcast to us called Fortunately with Fee and Jane a BBC4 podcast Um, hosted by Fee Glover and Jane Garvey from Women's Hour. Mm -hmm. And she alerted me in particular to episode 59 with Susanna Reid, who was interesting on a ton of topics. But what I really liked is when she asked Jane Garvey if it was awkward at the BBC post all of the very Mm. transparent kind Mm. of controversies over parity. And Jane Garvey answered completely honestly on a podcast that was produced by the BBC. So I just want to insert that clip because I think this kind of transparency is really admirable, not just of Jane Garvey, but of um, all of the bigwigs at the BBC who, I'm not saying they should, who could shut down this kind of conversation. But Dolly, you'll also, you'll also love this podcast because it's a, not a wildly dissimilar um, dynamic to me and you, Fee and Jane. They're very old. Oh, I thought you were going to say Jane and Jerrica then. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Much more in common with us than with Joan and Jerrica. And just they've clearly got a very established friendship, and they'll be talking about something like parity. And then halfway through, Jane will go, "You absolute tea leaf! You tea leaf! You thieved my sunglasses!" And she'll go, "Oh!" And Fee will go, "Oh, I'm using them as a hairband." <laughs> so it's very off the cuff, and that sounds um, great. Absolutely brilliant. How's it going, by the way? The BBC oh. women pay what? thing. Look, I'm down to my vouchers. She's <laughs> spending your vouchers. I've had a pay rise, as I as I said on Twitter last week. Is it um is it very painful at the BBC? Has it opened I more think, than a can of worms? I think it has led. And not just between the men and the women, no, no. but between but, female but, colleagues. Oh, yes. without question. This yeah. has been a deeply uncomfortable period, actually, genuinely, quite in my life. Yeah. And my last recommendation from the week is, of course, the celebrity interview, if not of the week, of the decade. Which I think we it's both the best celebrity interview I've ever read. Gloriously long. 
do not understand why every single magazine and newspaper supplement and newspaper insists on capping celebrity interviews the way it does. Mm, if there's lots of good stuff, let it roll on. And that is what The Observer did with the Lily Allen interview by Sophie Hayward. Lily, no stranger to drama, has an autobiography coming out, My Thoughts Exactly, and it is absolute gold in terms of the revelations. She talks about the time that Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin attempt to stall a cocaine-induced breakdown by inviting her over for an alfresco lunch in Santa Monica. She reveals that she cheated on her husband with a female sex worker. She also reveals that she shagged Liam Gallagher on a flight while he was still married to Nicole Appleton. And shockingly, she tells of the time in 2015 when she was sexually abused by a radio executive who claimed to want to help her. Mm. Dolly, what were the bits from the interview that you just found staggering in terms of Sophie as a writer and Lily as a celebrity and also an interviewee? I think in terms of Sophie's writing, I, 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 I just thought it was the perfect profile because she described her in such an accurate, um, sensitive non-judgmental vivid way and actually someone on twitter pointed out it's the first interview of a female celebrity she's read in years where there's no description of her physical appearance in the opening paragraph knows actually very very little about um her appearance full stop the joy of being a mother and i use that quote unquote Mm. the joy of being a mother Mm. um her children are mentioned only really in the context of motherhood not being what she Trauma. hoped it yeah. would be. Yeah. yeah. And I also think, you know, I know that Sophie and Lily Allen, I think, have a long standing. They've known each other, I think, before. So there years. was trust there. That's how she. Yeah, but yeah, you, that doesn't colour the interview. Sophie completely keeps, she doesn't put herself in the way of the interviewee. You know, when you, when you read about a subject in a journal. Vanity Fair used to do it. Half the interview was how the blooming writer was feeling that morning yes yeah he felt about meeting his idol and or when a journalist feels like they need to show the intimacy that they have with the subject you see that over and over again i just thought it was it was so beautifully told and i also like that that you know that there is an uncomfortable reality throughout the piece which is she's talking about her how she's been mistreated in the media and how she's been misrepresented and how she's experienced such intrusion into her life both from the media and from the an stalker. actual you know stalker who planned on killing her and so the uncomfortable thing is you're reading it is well why are you exposing your entire life and everything you've ever been through in a memoir i'm glad that sophie asked her why are you choosing to write about this and make yourself so vulnerable and watch how she replies which i totally totally understand she says so much has been written about me which is an altered truth or a lie if i were to die tomorrow i would want my girls to have a record of my side of the story which i totally understand that instinct i completely get um and another thing that i found really shocking is when she talked about how she released an album that had very mixed reviews called Jesus a few years ago and she made a, a, a huge error with a music video that mm-hmm. she did. I remember. Um, that, you know, she was 
accused of being racist for it was a, it was a massively misjudged well, the, the backing dancers were all black mm, mm, and scantily clothed and i think she was trying to make a satirical point on that kind of that kind of trope of of hit of misogyny in hip-hop but it just didn't translate and it doesn't it was translate deeply offensive. you're she was anticipating her audience to be much more thoughtful and clever than they are and i don't mean that in a patronizing way but yeah you sometimes i think you have to be careful not to expect everyone to understand exactly where you're going yeah and with, it's, with it's and it's still displaying a really damaging image you know yeah. so but she so, and I remember at the time thinking she'd done this huge thing in the media of how she was withdrawing from the media she wasn't going to make music anymore she's going to go live in the Cotswolds and knit for her babies and I remember at the time thinking it was bizarre that she'd made this comeback and such a revelation for me is when she said to Sophie I'd bought this enormous house in the Cotswolds and I couldn't pay my mortgage and it's so funny you just think of celebrities as being these untouchable people particularly financially and what do you do when you're Lily Allen and you need to make quick money? You can't, you know, I also, go do freelance work. What do you do? On that video as well, she actually really held her hands up and said, I made a massive mistake yeah. and I went away. And this is what celeb- This is a note to celebrities who kind of fuck up publicly. This is what you should say and do. She went away. She said, I did a lot of reading. Um... I read a lot of things by black feminist writers about intersectionality about about intersectionality and feminism Um, there's absolutely loads of great stuff on the internet I learnt so much I can absolutely see and agree with why I was criticised back in 2015 that's what you need to do Mm. and then you know people move on I am really looking forward to reading that book I know I've ordered it it's going to arrive tomorrow I'm very excited maybe you can tell us about it next week then yeah yeah I'll hoover it up I'm sure what have you been hoovering up this week is that your word (laughs) show you what I am like the memoir Dyson at the moment (laughs) I'm from I read She Wants It Desire, Power and Toppling the Patriarchy by Jill Soloway and it was so so good I kind of hero worship Jill Soloway and I credit her and a lot of her work for um, enlightening me on uh, a lot of subjects over the last few years particularly as someone who's come from you know decidedly heteronormative background and so I was kind of worried that that maybe I was pinning too much on this memoir I loved her first book which is a series of personal essays called uh, Tiny Ladies in Shiny Pants but the book actually superseded my expectations it's part memoir um, but also part manifesto and I would say to anyone who's a Jill Soloway fan if you want to read about her incredibly interesting upbringing and all her early work that she did in TV working on shows like Six Feet Under to read her first book because this book is more about her journey with making Afternoon Delight, which is a wonderful film with Juno Temple and Catherine Hahn, and Transparent, and her parents coming out as trans, and everything that Both happened in the Both her parents came way. out as trans? No, just one. Right. And, sorry, I use the word parent because that's the, that's the word that she uses. That's the non-gendered word that she uses in the book. Oh, that's interesting. Well, she says at the front, there's a kind of author's note here where she says... I found it most helpful to stay loose with pronouns. A few of us have been multiple genders over the course of this work. I boldly use the gender most suited to what I experienced at the time and sometimes use the word they to name a gender that has shifted over the years. Sometimes when I use the word dad, I also use the word she. I understand this is complex and sometimes uncomfortable. It is this discomfort that I hope will guide us into our non-binary future. I'm grateful for your trust. So it is, you know... Language is very, very important 
when we're discussing this stuff and it's something that most of us are very new to and it's something that you acclimatise to very quickly as you read. I think it's great that Jill included that note because it can be new territory and a lot to get your head around if you haven't read widely about people other than yourself and it's not something that you personally have experienced or really know that much about. Mm, So whilst I did wonder if the publisher said to Jill, can you include that note at the beginning? Either way, I think it's actually a helpful note to include because sometimes I think when we want to see change, we get quite angry that people don't understand straight away. And actually that's just a very kind of helpful, inclusive, inclusive, Mm. educational note. I'd love to read Jill's first book. Can you lend it to me? And actually, while I've been speaking, I've realised that I've defaulted to she as a pronoun, I think, when I was introducing her. And Jill Soloway actually prefers to go as they. But you know it, it, this is something that we're learning figuring so. out and you can only ever um, apologise for you know thoughtlessly or mistakenly yeah, using and the wrong try pronoun again so they write about their journey with gender feminism and sexuality they write about their marriage and its collapse and they write about their journey in recognising that they identify as non-binary they also talk about how they were invited into the Time's Up movement and talk about the kind of meetings that were happening with a series of very high profile women in Hollywood Mm -hmm. in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations and the kind of round table discussions that were happening with Reese Witherspoon, Oprah. It's kind of amazing. And they also address the fact that Jeffrey Tambor... I was about to ask you, what, what do they say on that? Do you know what it feels? It feels like that might have been written at the very last moment or revisited in a second draft. I would have thought entirely likely. Yeah, because it's it's kind of... It's not hurried, but it's the last thing that's discussed. Maybe because it's the last thing they want to discuss, but are aware they have to. I think it could be that, but I also think it could be this is actually so new and when you think about how far you work in advance with publishing, Mm. I think that it was probably happening as they were finishing the book. But, you know, they're very, very honest about what that revelation was like, which anyone who's unfamiliar, Transparent is a show that's very much made in this in this place of sensitivity and democracy and collaboration and community. I mean, they talk about that process in detail about how it's made. So it was kind of a disaster when Jeffrey Tambor, who's the lead, who plays Maura, um, a trans woman, was accused of sexual harassment. Against another trans woman. Against two other trans women. Two. Yeah. Interesting. And the amazing thing about Jill Soloway is they recognise that the thing that was at the forefront of their mind when these accusations were made was this is going to ruin the legacy of my TV show. This is going to ruin all the work. That I can completely understand mm. that being the first impulse. Mm. Shameful as it may feel yeah. in the aftermath to admit that. But I appreciate that honesty. Yeah. And yeah. she... Every, and they, everything that they've been fighting for is now in jeopardy if, if your lead, your celebrated, brilliant, let's be honest, brilliant, revered lead mm. turns out to be or is accused of being something you thought they weren't. And they recognise that, that sort of selfishness. And they also recognise that there is a moment when they question the motives of the accusers. That's interesting because 
it feels like that's such a oof, risky thing to do in light of Lena Dunham mm. backing her previous colleague, wasn't it, that was accused of sexual assault. Mm. And she was, I mean, almost destroyed over that, mm. Lena. So, well, I think Jill Soloway comes through the other side of that thought. But what I just found... Well, you don't have to believe. This is the thing. You don't have to believe every accusation. You just have to respect it. Mm. Well, I, I think they actually do believe the accusations. But by the end of the, of the final listen. chapter... That's what I meant. You have to yeah. listen. Yeah, but I think it was just... It was a very honest and brave process that I think they take you on. That sounds brilliant. And I want to read both. I've also been listening to Caliphate, which I know ah. you listen to as well, Pandora, uh, which has been recommended to me by a bunch of friends and loads of listeners, and I finally got round to listening to it. Deeply disturbing, but hugely informative podcast series from the New York Times, in which investigative journalist Rukmini Kalamachi tells the story of ISIS, speaks to former ISIS members, talks about her experience of being targeted by ISIS as a reporter, she talks about her experience of how she investigates ISIS. She takes big sort of rubbish bags to the front lines of the war against ISIS and kind of collects as much evidence and information as she can. And there are actually recordings of when she and a fellow journalist are in Mosul the day that it fell. I've still got a few episodes to go, but I've just been so hooked on it. It's obviously very, very upsetting at times, um, but I've just found it so educational on how ISIS was formed, what they believe, how they recruit, and why people might join. I just think it's excellent, excellent journalism. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it, because I agree. I think it's really brilliant. And it doesn't it doesn't date, for want of a better word. Mm. I think you can discover it whenever. I mean, yeah. you know, depressingly, it's not like ISIS are going anywhere. Yeah. So it is there for all of you waiting to discover. to this week's Scarlet Woman. There's at least one every week. Carrie Simmons, the 30-year-old former Tory communications director, is at the centre of a scandal after speculation that she was having an affair with Boris Johnson, who recently announced his impending divorce from his wife of 25 years, Marina Wheeler. Despite the fact that Boris was the one who was married and Boris is the famous politician, the coverage, as ever, has been weighted on Carrie. How she is covered depends on the opinion and mode of the media outlet. In a blessed few outlets, she is described as a smart, likeable woman with a hugely promising future who graduated with a first-class degree. In 90% of the coverage, she is a saucy seductress, the ruthless blonde with the nickname Apples because of her squishy cheeks, who ascended the Tory party at great speed by deploying her dangerous female charm on the men around her. The one thing which I think is sort of uplifting from this story is I think our brains are finally being collectively turned onto the sort of language and attitude that is always defaulted to when speaking about women who've had affairs with men in power. I think for so long we've just accepted it as, as tabloidies. The same goes for women who celebrate their curves or put on a leggy display. <laughs> you or, do both of those, actually. Thank you. Show their ex what they're missing. I don't think you do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was barbed, but I enjoyed it. Um, but it's like I'm, a shit sandwich. <laughs> um, I'm so grateful that we're now at a point where it feels like the masses are cognizant of the misogyny and the very sinister strategy 
behind this language and the widespread damage it can do on on culture and on kind of collective consciousness. We got so many emails from listeners urging us to talk about the way this story was reported. Yeah, we did. We actually got loads of emails on Serena as well. I like you guys are doing the hard work for us. Much better than us sifting, <laughs> sifting through the news. Flaunting is my favourite tabloidies. Flaunting the Yeah, legs. Dolly flaunts her legs as she walks to the supermarket. It's like, no, she's literally using her legs <laughs> as they were made to work. It's so easy for the media to paint the scarlet woman now because they just take any picture from Facebook where the woman in question looks like they're having fun and pretends that this was how they would turn up to work in a leotard drinking a glass of wine with sparklers on her head. Mm. Normally she's hooting in a really exuberant, unflattering way so that she'll have a couple of chins and maybe a bit of side boob for extra scarlet woman points. The Sun even opted for a picture of her 11 years ago in a school uniform at a fancy dress party as proof that the Foreign Secretary was cavorting, quote-unquote, with a woman young enough to be his daughter. Can I just say that the young enough to be your daughter line is seriously moot? Because you can technically be someone's daughter realistically until the age of 70. I'm someone's daughter. You're someone's daughter. (laughs) Boris is someone's son. And, you know, so on and so forth goes the ridiculousness. Yeah, I do think it's quite an old-fashioned, pearl-clutchy refrain, the young enough to be their daughter thing. I mean, you're someone's cousin as well. I could go, someone's second cousin once removed. What picture do you think the media would use of us if we become a scarlet woman? And we keep using this catch-all term, by the way, the media, to mean not necessarily every single media outlet, because arguably the Hilo is a media outlet, but the mainstream press, whether that be broadcasting, broadsheets or tabloids. I reckon that when you become the scarlet woman, they would just crop me out of the high-low promotional pics where you're wearing a pink suit and downing a bottle of red or they take one of those sexy selfies you do looking doe-eyed and booby in a gorgeous vintage dress and they'd claim that they'd found you sending that to your politician paramour. Sadly, I think mine would 100% be me falling off the surfboard for the Sunday Times (laughs) travel section. Which, by the way, Sunday Times travel section, I am so glad is still at the top of my Google image search. Um, You've got so many good ones to choose from online. There's a library of beautiful, well-lit professional photos. Most of them wearing things that I can't imagine what was going through my head at that particular time. Well, now I have a child, I'd definitely be pictured with the child and I'd definitely be neglecting her because a woman who has an affair is always abandoning her children. Of course. The problem, of course, is the media rhetoric. And as two journalists, I can only assure you that this is something we actively try and combat. For instance, I'm really adverse to whenever I interview a celebrity, if she's a single woman of childbearing age, if and when she wants children, because you wouldn't ask a man that. Mm. As Fran Yeoman wrote for iNews, it's simple, if you wouldn't pose a particular question to a bloke or say it about a bloke, expunge it from your coverage of women. The irrelevancy of the coverage has been hilarious. I know you say we're kind of cognizant of it, but it doesn't, we we might be more aware of it, but it's still very much going on. I mean, a former colleague told the Times, her friends were all beautiful. It looked like an episode of Love Island, but she didn't blow any of us away at number 10. It's just like... What the fuck is that? What's your thing? I liked Huff Post, who titled that op-ed to literally no one's surprise, the media has treated Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons completely differently. A lot of this subject relates back to a lot of what I've been reading in Jill Soloway's book. They talk a lot about the divided female, which is the idea that women can be one of two caricatures. Wholesome, nurturing, good, maternal, generous and kind, or sexualised, deceitful, selfish evil. It's a polarisation we only apply to women. 
we have done since biblical times. And when you look at how we write about multifaceted women and their achievements, as well as the transgressions, their assets, as well as their downfalls, we still minimise with that template, that polarisation now. Well, it's the Madonna and the whore. Mm. It's the binary, which we talk about a lot. I was riveted to read a piece by Anna Fazakali, another woman dragged through the mud by the media for her supposed association to Boris Johnson. Side note, what do these women see in him? Christ alive, gals. If the hair wasn't enough. (laughs) And, And the odd statements. Just look at the video of him going on a run. Anyway, 12 years ago, she wrote for The Guardian a few days ago, I was reported as having an affair with him by News of the World. The police have confirmed that the newspaper hacked and probably also stole my mobile. It hired a private investigator to trail me on a family holiday to Cornwall. He went on a lot of dog walks and got quite fed up. (laughs) For one nightmare week, just like Harry Simmons, the former Conservative Party PR chief who has recently been linked to Johnson, I had tabloid reporters camped outside my house and those of everyone in my family. I had to go into hiding with my mum. It was hell. That was a long time ago. A lot has changed in my life, but the harassment of women in the media hasn't changed at all. Each new story about Johnson provides an excuse to rehash the same tawdry details. This woman had an abortion and that woman had a love child. The point is that the women in these stories aren't treated as women at all. We are dehumanised for the purpose of titillating readers under the trumped-up banner of outraged public interest. Imagine if you'd supported a a friend through something as upsetting as an abortion. Imagine if you'd been through something as traumatic as a miscarriage. How would you feel if it was in the papers for the next 15 years? Reminds me of Rebecca Luz and David Beckham, actually. Mm. I mean, Rebecca Luz just had her life ruined and moved back to Spain and... David Beckham's doing just fine. It's astonishing to think of how many women have suffered through that kind of harassment and that public shaming simply by proxy of being involved or associated with Boris Johnson. When for all these years he's just been sort of bumbling through as Bojo, the occasional bad boy, but mainly lovable buffoon dangling off a zip wire like a benevolent polar bear (laughs) oh my god there's so many good adjectives in there it's impossible not to talk about the scarlet woman without mentioning monica Lewinsky, the media's ultimate historic femme fatale at the center of the ultimate political sex scandal after she admitted to an affair with the then president of the usa bill clinton in 1998 you have to think that this wouldn't happen now and i know you you say that you mentioned earlier that things have changed but If you think men or Bill Clinton has changed in 20 years, you'd be wrong. Earlier this summer, Clinton was asked by Craig Melvin on NBC's Today programme whether he felt he owed Monica an apology in light of the Me Too movement and obviously the fact that there were very different power dynamics Mm. at play in that affair. He replied, I apologised to everybody in the world. And Melvin said, but you didn't apologise to her. I haven't talked to her, Clinton said. Do you feel like you owe her an apology? Melvin asked. No, I do not. I mentioned it on last week's episode, uh, but just to reiterate, Slate's Slow Burn Series 2, which is a podcast series, is a really close examination of Clinton's gradual downfall with the crescendo of his affair with Lewinsky, and it really is the most heartbreaking and outrageous and infuriating thing when you listen to the way that she was manhandled, manipulated exposed and publicly disgraced he definitely owes her an apology he won't even say the woman's name that's how little respect he has for her one of the most powerful things i have ever seen because i think it actually really 
shaped a lot of the discussions we're now having is Monica Lewinsky's TED talk Mm. The Price of Shame which was recorded in 2015 after a very long absence from the media the start of the talk is almost the best bit I think and I'm going to insert it here can I see a show of hands of anyone here who didn't make a mistake or do something they regretted at 22 yep that's what I thought (laughs) So like me, at 22, a few of you may have also taken wrong turns and fallen in love with the wrong person, maybe even your boss. Unlike me, though, your boss probably wasn't the president of the United States of America. Another really interesting part that we should remind ourselves of every day, and I'm sure John Ronson, the author and journalist who we often reference when we talk about public shame, would say the same, is when Monica talks about our compassion deficit and empathy crisis that was first identified by Brene Brown, who said, shame can't survive empathy. And Monica says it was empathy that got her through that traumatic time. She also allowed an insight into what it's like for the parents of the Scarlet Woman who's only in her early 20s, to be publicly vilified, globally vilified, in fact. My mum was gutted with pain in a way that I just couldn't understand. And then eventually I realised she was reliving 1998, reliving a time when she sat by my bed every night, reliving a time when she made me shower with the bathroom door open, and reliving a time when both of my parents feared that I would be humiliated to death literally it's an incredible talk everyone should watch it or listen to it if you haven't yet get on with it doesn't take long it's brilliant no excuses something else i've heard john ronson say in regards to public shaming which i found so profound is that disgust breeds in curiosity oh god yeah he was saying in reference to how we treat porn actors in everyday life He argues that when we're swept away with mass disgust, we have absolutely no interest in the person who's targeted. It's one of the most dehumanising things about the process of public shame. No one has any interest in hearing about the human behind the scandal, who that person is away from the supposed transgression. They are just merely a kind of prop in the story. That sort of reminded me of a story that we didn't cover, but, you know, it was huge and still raiders on is how Ariana Grande was... Mm vilified via social media when her ex-boyfriend had an overdose. People were writing, he wouldn't have killed himself if you'd stayed with him. And then other people were chiming in. I mean, there was a whole sort of debate within the comment section. Other people were chiming in saying, why should she stay with a man if she wasn't in love with him? And people were saying, because, because she owed him that. She knew she knew how vulnerable she was. he was. And people were saying, would he have stayed with her if he didn't love her and she'd been an addict? That's a whole different thing, but she that's another example of a woman being actually this is different to this Monica Lewinsky and Carrie Simmons were Carrie Simmons alleged I think isn't it whereas Mm. Monica Lewinsky has admitted she was having an affair anyway they are either supposed or admitted parties in Mm. that affair at least Ariana Grande has ostensibly got absolutely nothing to do with that anyway all about how we treat women isn't it online Ted revealed that they'd never received as many nasty comments via social media as they did for the Monica Lewinsky talk the social media editor of Ted revealed that when her boss asked her how the reception to the talk was going because she was moderating the comments on Facebook she broke down in tears which makes me despair in a sense because that shows that in two decades nothing has changed we think it has but clearly it hasn't however these comments were all made before anyone had watched the 20 minute talk after people had watched it it was a different story which shows that when people bother to listen to a woman 
they often change their mind. But how many of those original commenters went on to actually listen? How many of those people will go on to investigate Carrie Simmons as a woman? A woman so bright and accomplished that she was about to begin, and hopefully still will, but it has been postponed, she was about to begin a job at Bloomberg, leading on their Clean Up the Oceans initiative. This is a woman at our age. If I had a, um, a friend doing that mm. job, having previously been high up in communications to the Conservative Party, I'd be in awe. Obviously, no one's interested in her as a person, though. Yeah, it goes back to the disgust breeding curiosity. It's such a problem, particularly when we live in a time of mass reactions. If one person claims in curiosity, so many of us will just follow suit. Back to that TED talk, Nadia um, Petschek rules who is the director of social media at TED, who was the one moderating the comments, wrote an article about Monica Lewinsky's talk and she said some really important things about how we need to moderate the internet because she said if you stem the flow of hate then you can reshape almost public consciousness and it stops others from contributing Mm. um reaction is a really key part of what you then go on to say and she says the irony is that monica Lewinsky's talk was on the dangers of online bullying Mm. so i just wanted to read out a few things she wrote because i think this can very much be applied to um any scarlet woman shaming shaming I think of that moment of sea change like a sort of herd immunity. The positive voices, when there are enough of them, keep abusive ones from spreading, just as a mostly vaccinated population protects those few people who are not. Together we have the power to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. This phenomenon is Monica's message in action. She asks us to be upstanders, to speak up and stand up for those who are victims of our culture of shame. No one deserves a scarlet letter, and when we make people pay a public price for their private actions, we are demonstrating a radical failure of empathy. When we speak up with something as simple as a supportive Facebook comment, we make it clear that our culture is not a space for public shame and humiliation. Monica had a beautiful line in her talk. We talk a lot about our right to freedom of speech, but we need to talk more about our responsibility to freedom of speech. It's time for us to take responsibility, she wrote. I couldn't agree more with that, and I think it's beautifully put to remember that freedom of speech is absolutely a right, but is also absolutely a responsibility, and that doesn't mean officially using people as a public punch bag. To bring it back to Carrie Simmons, the Huffington Post has released an open letter signed by dozens of women working in Westminster or who report on politics or in some way involved, rallying against the sexist treatment of the media towards Carrie It is often asked why women are hesitant to get into political journalism, become MPs or simply start a career in Westminster. Incidents like these go some way towards explaining why, opens the letter. To the journalists and editors who have used news stories as an excuse to infringe on the personal life of a young woman and titillate their readers and the people in Westminster who have helped them make this shameful coverage happen, we say do better be better. Signatories include the Sports Minister and Minister for Loneliness, who we've talked about before on the high low, Tracy Crouch, the MPs Jess Phillips and Stella Creasy, plus some journalists we and you may be familiar with, including Marie LeConte and Suzanne Moore. That's really great, but I would love to see more men working in Westminster sign the bloody thing, including Boris, the benevolent polar bear himself. That'd be good. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An era ended a few days ago and that was sad. But arguably, inevitable confirmation that Big Brother and Celebrity Big Brother is coming to an end. The forthcoming series of Big Brother will be the last of either celebrity or civilian versions on Channel 5, a statement from the channel reads. We'd like to thank Endemol and all of the production team who've worked tirelessly to make the show a success. I love that. Celebrity or civilian versions? I do think that's me and you. Do you think you're the celebrity and I'm the civilian version of the Hilo? <laughs> I don't know when that's become. I've read that a term. It's it's everywhere in reference to Big Brother, celebrity and civilian. I think it's very insulting. I'm going to use it. <laughs> a recap of this zeitgeist moment in popular culture, because it was once a zeitgeist moment mm-hmm. in popular culture. Big Brother premiered in 2000, yes, 18 years ago, with 11 housemates stuck together for 64 days. Hosted by Davina McCall, it attracted an average audience of 4.5 million viewers per episode. The contestants were trapped together in a house for an extended period of time, isolated from the world, and the aim was sort of pedestrian, domestic interpretation of Lord of the Flies. Channel 5 took over the series from Channel 4 in 2011, which is arguably when it started to dip in terms of resonance. It failed to bring viewers back, although there was still an average 1.6 million viewers tuning into the 12th series. The Independent points out, which I hadn't known or thought about, uh, that since the show went over to Channel 5, the civilian, (laughs) as they're now calling it, Big Brother audience, dropped incrementally, but the celebrity Big Brothers always did much better. Ah. And I think that's so telling in terms of where we are now compared to those first series of Big Brother. Because I think unguarded sort of charming authenticity was so much easier to find in those early series with the contestants and then gradually it just became a sort of you know training ground finishing school for future z-list celebrities Mm. and perhaps in the end kind of understandably people decided they'd prefer to watch actual celebrities with comically large egos and weird habits and tawdry insider gossip if they're going to watch (laughs) non-civilians rather than people doing kind of impressions of fame. Absolutely. That reminds me a bit of a Love Island contestant from last year's series, Montana Brown, who admitted to loose women that she went on to Love Island to find a public platform. To do what? Asked one of the hosts. I'm not sure yet, she replied admirably honestly I think there is also and I'm depressed to admit this but I think it's quite an important an element of look how the mighty have fallen to contribute to why people love Celebrity Big Brother because no celebrity in their prime goes or went on CBB sometimes they escape unscathed but often it is the precursor to them doing that column in closer when they reveal the contents of their artistically arranged fridge Oh my God, I'd forgotten about that column. I, I, was, that. I was obsessed with it. I still managed to read it quite a lot through the dentist or flicking through at the supermarket or I managed to keep up with the fridge quite a lot actually. I forgot about the fridge column. It was such a good column. I'm you haven't done it yet. And there's always a nutritionist at the end being like, well... They me- always get eight out of ten. And it's like, Mika Paris is doing very well 
with her carb intake, but she's not doing so well with the protein. No, with her honey and tea. <laughs> I spoke to Ed Cripps, who is a TV story consultant, journalist, and has worked as a story producer on a number of reality TV shows about Big Brother, its demise, and its legacy. Were you surprised when you found out that Big Brother was coming to an end? I think it's got to the stage now in 2018 where viewers can get their kicks elsewhere. So social media is this kind of permanent popularity contest and forum for people to reinvent themselves. Mm. The romance of Love Island, the sort of celebrity sadism of I'm a celebrity, the warmth of Great British Bake Off, which often shows unexpected friendships between people from different generations or different backgrounds. Big Brother now just feels like a a relic of sorts that's out of touch when it used to be so transgressive. And now, I I think the sort of final nail in the coffin, if you like, was the the Roxanne Pallet incident, where I, I think that gave Channel 5 quite a... I mean, it was an awful, unfortunate, perfect storm of different things. But I, the head of Channel 5, he's always been quite a sort of reluctant custodian of the brand. Mm. And he said, I, it's in de- a couple of years ago, or last year at Edinburgh, he said it's in decline, decline, decline. And I think this l- latest incident gave him quite a sort of convenient reason just to say, I'll tell you what, um, we've had a lovely few years, but I... I, I don't want Big Brother. We don't want Big Brother on this channel anymore. Overall, the series of Big Brother. Did you ever notice that there was a particular kind of stock character that kept occurring? I think the archetypes you get in reality TV are surprisingly similar to the archetypes you get in fairy tales. So, the fool, the underdog, the posh villain the love rat, the ugly duckling, the bully, the backstabber. Um, but the, the one that's particularly true of Big Brother, I think, is the contrast between working class honesty and the duplicitous toff, if you like, like the charming but deceitful toff. And I think that in series one of Big Brother, there was a guy called Nick, Nick Bateman, who was this very smooth, posh, quite handsome man in his sort of late 30s. And he was cheating. He was very subtly cheating. And there was this amazing, understated moment. The whole thing is so understated where Craig, this lovely builder, Craig, who went on to win the whole thing from Liverpool, found this stash of names in a bin. And... Um, worked out that it was Nick's handwriting and called a sort of uh, very civilised house meeting at the dining room table and said, I'm so sorry to do this, Nick, but it's come to my attention that you may have broken the rules. Do you have anything to say about it? And Nick denied it, denied it, denied it, and then they eventually, sort of, as a house, teased out the fact that he had cheated. He left the house. He became this sort of... Uh, ironic national sort of bad boy because of it. But that level of debate was so civilised and also it was a lovely um, 
classy triumph for the the working class honest man getting on over rightly getting on over the the, the cheating posh boy and are there any particular contestants throughout big brother history that you think people will really remember as time goes on i think nadia winning um there was a trans woman from Portugal called Nadia who mm. won in 2004. And I think this is something that we sometimes forget with Big Brother is for all its darker extremes and moments like Jaden Shilpa, it's actually been from quite an early progressive... Uh, it's been quite ahead of the time with its recalibration of attitudes towards the historically underrepresented. So the trans community was Nadia, gay people from conservative backgrounds. There was a lesbian ex-nun called Anna in Big Brother 1. Mental Health Big Brother 7, I think it was, was won by a chap called Pete who had Tourette's. And even just sex in general. Like there was that one couple who had sex under a kitchen table in Big Brother 5. And... Even, even though the, the Roxanne Pallet incident uh, is the sort of incident where no one really comes out of that particularly well, including the producers on the show, who really shouldn't have ever let her go in there, personally, I think. It's, it's paved the way for those sorts of moments, like Jade Shelter, and even like Adam on Love Island this year, about unacceptable behaviour, and then the sort of public debate you can have around that. How do you anticipate we will look at Big Brother in the kind of context of wider history and popular culture when we look back at it? The story of reality TV itself has a sort of dramatic three-act structure, a utopian beginning, which I think the first few series of Big Brother were, the fall, the sort of descent where it got darker, more sadistic. Um, I think Jeremy Kyle was probably the nadir of that, the full sort of mini-movement of TV, reality TV. And then more recently, it's become much lighter and more redemptive. And possibly since the Brexit referendum and the election of Trump, I think the default motive of the most popular reality TV has shifted from discord to harmony. So if you think of what have been the really popular recent reality TV shows, it's things like Gogglebox, First Dates, um, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, RuPaul's Drag Race, even Great British Bake Off I know is a sort of, it's one of those funny shows like The Apprentice where it's sort of half game show, half reality show but i think there's been a really symbolic handing over from big brother which historically was channel four's great you know ratings juggernaut to great British bake-off which obviously starts on the bbc but in terms of branding branding the channel and the show that you think will or that a channel thinks will chime best with um with a, an audience of sensibility, it's, it's, it's oddly heartening, I think. And when the news is so full of 
arguing and antagonism, kindness, oddly, and warmth is more cathartic than conflict. I think the longer it's off the screen, the more positive people's memories of it will, will, will become. And what an important show people will realise it was in those early days. Ed, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. I found it so interesting what Ed was saying about how Big Brother in its own way was quite revolutionary in terms of how it celebrated and gave a platform for the historically underrepresented to tell their story and how powerful that was um, on something as mainstream and ubiquitous as a 24-hour reality show. I think it's so easy to be snooty about Big Brother and only recall the damaging things that it did to popular culture, which, you know, there were a few. Namely, it was the main food source for the naughty's beast that was celebrity culture and kind of fame obsession. But thinking back, I, I think Nadia was the first ever trans woman who I'd seen on TV when I was a kid. Definitely that was a person that we got to know over a period yeah. of months and who wasn't the sort of silent mm-hmm. punchline to an offensive joke and who went on to win what was a national popularity contest. She secured 74% of the overall vote and she won 63,500. I just can't believe I can still remember that off by heart and haven't Googled it um, at all. <laughs> Thank you, Ed, firstly. That's a great point he makes about the underrepresented. I got quite nostalgic speaking with Ed. I'd forgotten that there was a period of my life where Big Brother was this really important cultural happening in the year which sort of shaped my kind of every day yeah granted I was a teenager in the suburbs who never had a boyfriend so that might have been why but I remember at school it was all we talked about I'd get Heat magazine every Tuesday as a sort of accompanying commentary on the series my friend Farley did all her GCSE revision with Big Brother Live on E4 streaming in the background all day you'd always want to get home on a Friday to watch the live show and then if you were a mega fan like me you'd watch the highlights reel of the live show the next morning it was such a prolific and mutating moment of popular culture I love what you said there is a mutating moment I mean the nostalgia is almost overwhelming Mm. I remember being age 13 which was when it premiered in 2000 sitting in front of the telly literally right in front of it surrounded by all my friends and family we were on holiday in Scotland watching this revolutionary Mm. thing and I used to watch the live coverage with the chickens pecking around I found it quite meditative it's like watching a sort of fake fire flicker on a telly I'd quite (laughs) like the chickens back I could do with some pecking chickens in my everyday life We asked Twitter what their favourite moments from Big Brother were over the last 18 years and the response was massive. It was like Sunday and it kept coming up on my sodding phone. (laughs) It was a huge response. 200 replies. (laughs) The same moments kept coming back. There was Helen's I love blinking I do. (laughs) McCosey's pregnancy scare after a moment of passion in the jacuzzi. Alex smoothly singing That's the Way I Like It from Behind the Door. We had Michelle's No Naked Jacuzzi-ness. We had Tim's Comprende. Who could forget George Galloway's Oh, God, so haunting. Now, would you like me to be the cat? Jackie Stallone's Oh, my God, Jackie! Yeah, Jackie. But, of course, the most popular from our poll was Who is she? Who is she? Who is she? Where did you find her? Who is she? Who is she is my fave. I still say it quite a lot, still to this day. Most people get it, but some <laughs> some don't. It's like um, when I quote 
um, my husband and I quote Bridget Jones quite a lot. So Ollie will say, Ngoche. <laughs> um, that's quite a niche one, because that's the third. I'll just turn this on. Thank you, Brenda. I mean, to be fair, both of us can do almost all of it. Ditto, double Wes Prada. A favourite moment for me is when Angie Bowie quietly told Tiffany Pollard that she'd been informed her ex-husband David was dead, and Tiffany thought that fellow contestant David Guest had died. It was a that was a tragic but almost unbearably funny moment of black comedy. I mean, obviously, sadly, David Guest is now also dead. But it was just such a shit show as Tiffany, immediately on receiving this news, ran all over the house telling people that David Guest was dead before finding David Guest alive and well in the bedroom and like freaking out even more. I mean, I hope that's not disrespectful. Me finding that clip funny, but it was just the absolutely nutty fiasco. <laughs> My favourite moment was Vanessa Feltz's meltdown in the first ever Celebrity Big Brother. In fact, that whole series was amazing. Vanessa Feltz just <laughs> lost her mind and starts writing indecipherable scrawls in chalk all over the table while Big Brother pleads for her to come into the diary room and she responds flatly, no, fuck off. Do you think that's you in... Um... I 100% Comes would the go diary room, Dolly. No, fuck off. Writing I'm... haikus on the blackboard. But that's why I think it's so relatable that... I, you know, no, I would, off. I would have lost my mind being in that Big Brother house, and I think Vanessa Feltz kind of represents how so many of us would behave. And that clip can be found on YouTube in a video named, which I very much appreciate, Feltz Melts. <laughs> God, this is enjoyable. She was so totally brilliant on that show. I actually love Vanessa on her own Radio Two show. She's so unguarded. Yeah, our friend Sophie Wilkinson is like obsessed a groupie to Vanessa Feltz's radio show. My other favourite trivia I've discovered while researching this topic is that Grace and Mikey, a couple who met on Big Brother Series 6, are still together 12 years later and have three children. Oh, bliss. Mm. Sort of like a televisual form of Tinder. Not a common outcome, but it does happen. Farewell, Big Brother, and all who sailed and had petty rows about groceries in a... <laughs> <laughs> Time for Ask the Hilo. Panda, do you want to kick us off with the question? Dear Dolly and Pandora, I have recently moved to Berlin on my own to discover this city and what it has to offer. I don't know anyone in Berlin and the move has been a very overwhelming experience. I must admit that the feeling of loneliness is a bit more present than I imagined, as making friends in a new city is quite hard, especially in a foreign country. I was hoping that you might be able to recommend a few books regarding that topic, to be surrounded by people but to still feel very alone. I thought that having some books might help me a bit. Jolly, what would you recommend? I love this question because as someone who spends quite a lot of time in the, time on their own and also travels on their own, it's very different to what you're doing. You're doing a very brave and brilliant and exciting thing that I'm sure when you look back at your life, you'll be really proud of yourself for, for making the leap. Um, but I do travel quite a lot on my own and that can get lonely. And over the years, I've found that certain books can be like medicine when you feel like you're in a foreign place it's all alone. It's a thing, bibliotherapy. Bibliotherapists recommend books to you as a form of therapy. Oh, I love that. So you're going to do a bit of amateur bibliotherapy? Well, yeah, I was going to say, so here's my prescription for you. First of all, uh, something that always helps me is to read about observers being in a new place on a big adventure. Oh, a bit of Bill Bryson. So a bit of Bill Bryson, um, the essays of Joan Didion, and the travel writing of A.A. Gill, because I think it will just galvanise you and energise you and put you in a mindset where you feel like you 
have your little backpack on and you're on an exciting adventure and you're there to absorb a new culture a new culture and meet new people I also prescribe you um, some comfort reads so any uh, anything by Nora Ephron I know I talk about her a lot but she really has been such a comfort uh, to me throughout my life and I know she has been for a lot of uh, people particularly a lot of women heartburn the most of Nora Ephron which is a great collection of essays I feel bad about my neck and I remember nothing. I also recommend Love Nina by Nina Stibby, which is one of the funniest books I've ever read and will is so British at its heart. I think it will be a nice kind of taste of home. Barbara Pym is very funny, writing about kind of 1950s um, social scenes and it's kind of just uplifting. And then I also recommend, and I'm sorry to do this, Desert Island Discs, because I think nothing makes me feel less alone than listening to the Desert Island Disc back catalogue because it reminds me that so many people from so many different backgrounds on so many different life trajectories since the 1940s, which I think is when it was first recorded, have experienced and felt the same things that you're experiencing and feeling. And it just gives me such a profound sense that everything will make sense when I'm looking backwards. Oh, some lovely recommendations there. How about you, Panda? In the spirit of books written a while ago, isn't that funny how both of us are kind of instantly in our heads referring to things that were written in sort of 30s, 40s, 50s? I would recommend Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. I would recommend some Nancy Mitford. I would advise you to take out a subscription for the week because when I'm away from England, nothing reminds me of home um than the week that's a a great idea i have a subscription here but i think it would be even more meaningful if you live in another country even though it obviously does a roundup of kind of global news actually it is so distinctly british everything about the week i would also recommend i don't know if it will necessarily make you feel better but another book that deals with the idea of feeling very alone when surrounded by people is one of my favorite books that i actually did my dissertation on didn't do terribly well in that dissertation which is a source of unending dismay to me but it is prep by curtis sittenfeld and it's about a girl who goes to a co-ed um boarding school in i think massachusetts if it's wrong no biggie um and how she just doesn't fit in and she's a spectacular observer of everyone else in this kind of microclimate this microcosm of society going through puberty so i would say prep is an amazing book if you sort of are looking for other novels of people feeling kind of outside mm. a place rather than inside and I also always recommend Catcher in the Rye it's just always a brilliant book to read and in terms of just sheer comfort the authors that I go back to again and again at points when I'm feeling very fragile are Jill Mansell, Jojo Moyes and Marianne Keys. Oh so, Marianne Keys is a great shout. So all of those um, for just lovely characters and lovely people and some good old-fashioned human warmth absorbing stories and if all that fails bit of fucking eat bray love mate (laughs) thank you very much to everyone who listened to the high load don't forget to rate review and subscribe on itunes it helps other people find us it helps boost us up the old chart you can email us thehighlowshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehighlowshow bye 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 When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.